This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie P. Today on the podcast, I have a returning guest, Carver Brown, and I'm so excited to have him back. He's going to be talking to us about structured family recovery, and he'll bring his enthusiasm and his passion and his wisdom and insight and humor. So I hope that you enjoy this. Welcome, Carver. Oh, thank you, Jackie. It's good to be on with you again, and it's great to, to be here with you, and uh, it's, I'm, just, I'm excited to catch up. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, okay, so you were telling me before I hit record about the structured family recovery. So start, kind of rewind and start what you were telling me. I know, because I was already, my, my enthusiasm level was peaking already. Yes, and I had to be like, wait, I got to hit record. No, I know. Wait a minute, let's stop. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I was, as I was saying, I was, uh, I was privileged to attend uh, a series of lectures by the author of uh, Deborah Jay, who's the author of the book, It Takes a Family. And in that book is what describes the process of structured family recovery. Now, Deborah Jay used to run the family program at Hazelden. And she also, she also you might know Deborah Jay from uh, the Oprah Winfrey show, because not so long ago when Oprah would have sessions of episodes that dealt with addiction as a topic, Deborah would be the, the expert sort of our source who would be talking about addiction and family relations and what have you. She's accomplished. She's a, a delightful lady. And, uh, and so she came to do this series of lectures about structured family recovery. And I am in this thing and I am like starting to finish her sentences. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I, I was like overwhelmed because for the past, you know, over 10 years, I have been working primarily with patients in inpatient treatment mm -hmm. and developing alumni programs, trying to get patients reconnected to the treatment center, helping uh, our, our graduates of a treatment center to maintain their recovery and enhance their recovery. And families have always been the missing piece. You know, I've always talked to families about, you know, the best thing that you can do for this person you're so concerned about is for you to get in recovery too. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I was completely ineffective. I would try to send them to Al-Anon and Naranon or Families Anonymous or any other just family assistance program or individual care, you know, with a therapist. And, and I was just woefully ineffective. And, and it, was, it was so frustrating to me. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in this lecture and Deborah Jay is, and, and I, I'm, I'm just, boy, my excitement was building and I had to know more. And so I, I, I applied for her training. She won't take just anybody. And, uh, and, and I, I miraculously got accepted mm -hmm. and went to Ohio and attended this training and took the course and immediately started working with families in this process. And the outcomes have just been extraordinary. 
And I've been so excited about it that just virtually everywhere I go, I have been talking about structured family recovery as a process to create uh, a recovery team out of a family, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So what did you notice shifted once you took the training from where before you were trying to get people and families to get into their own recovery and now all of a sudden it was working and you were able to build the family as the recovery team? Well, the first thing was I, I had to come to the realization that what I was asking of families was too difficult a task. Mm. To say to a family member, go to a meeting, uh, try it on, come back, let me know what you think. I was, I was asking them to do something. I was, I was amping up too, too quickly, if that makes sense. What I needed to do was I needed to divide their, their recovery task into smaller little tiny tasks. So for instance, instead of just sending a family member, we needed to talk about, first of all, why do they need it? What's, mm -hmm. What, why, why do they need, because we need to talk about the elephant in the room, you know, family members so many times, and Jackie, I know you've run across this, is we'll sit back sometimes without saying it, but sometimes they do say it. Why do I need recovery? Mm -hmm. Why do I need help? This isn't my problem. Right. Well, or they may feel blamed, right? When we start to offer those services. This is true and very good. And that's right. That'll be kind of sometimes the unspoken elephant in the room as well. Uh, they feel some responsibility because they know that all of their best efforts that they've tried to understand and or to defeat this disease of addiction have been woefully ineffective. And they feel some shame and they feel some responsibility. And, and then, you know, quite naturally, their own anger and frustration has come out mm -hmm. and, and they, they feel that they've contributed to the damaged relationship that really is just a manifestation of the disease of addiction. Yeah. yeah. So talk about some of those basic steps. Like what do you, you talk about focusing on the elephant in the room? Right. Well, look, the first thing you need to do is it's important to talk about outcomes, okay. right? Because, you know, everybody's concerned about how successful recovery programs are going to be. Mm -hmm. So we talk about, you know, the, the single most effective aftercare program, 12-step recovery, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk about, let's look at the outcomes. So what we know today is that we know that people who just walk into 12-step fellowships and manage to stay sober or in recovery the first year without a slip is running a woefully small 5%, mm. right? Uh, yeah, that's about, probably what I would see, yeah. Yeah, about 5% of the people who just blindly walk in, declare themselves a member, start sharing, stay with the process. So many drift away immediately, some that stay in, but about 5% of the people we can best as we can we can tell because we're a flighty bunch you know right? <laughs> and so you know i'm i'm in recovery and i'm still waiting for my survey and i'm a little i'm a little angry got a little resentment nobody's like rushing to give me a survey i maybe could skew the numbers a little bit so anyway if people that go to treatment do better right right so let's let's isolate the treatment community let's look at those numbers because those are those move, move up. 
But as you know, there's different types of treatment. There's, there's outpatient, intensive outpatient recovery programs. There's residential care. We, all, we know that the longer the duration of treatment, the better the outcomes, right? 90-day right? programs yield better results than 60-day, than 28-day, and so on. But if we took all of those, the, if we took all of those patients and we looked at the overall outcome, we're, we're still looking at a relatively low 22 to 30 percent recovery rates for people who attend treatment programs who stay sober the first year without a slip. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of money for that low, low percentage. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh my. And, and, and we could spend the whole podcast talking about how underserved people that don't have resources are. True. And, ta- and listen, don't, don't get me started. You know, yeah. Evans, it's, that's a, it's, it's a travesty that's going on right now. And then we could do another podcast on incarceration of people. Mm. With yes. These. Don't get me on that. There's another <laughs> one. Evans, I could, you know, I mean, I'm ready to start waving flags and I'm ready to start a march right now. But there's a subgroup of that treatment community. There is a subgroup out there. And this subgroup enjoys 85 to 90% recovery rates, heavily documented for five years without a slip. Who in the world are those? Right. Well, most of my listeners are like, sign me up. Exactly. Exactly. Who are these people? Well, these guys are the attorneys, the judges, the doctors, right? The airline pilots. I'm always extraordinarily grateful when I board Delta. And I know that if the pilot is in recovery, there's an 85 to 90% recovery rate that he's doing great. Uh, So this represents, so let's look at that. Why do doctors, why do attorneys, why do airline pilots? Well, these guys, you know, you might say, well, these guys are just smart, right? They're just smart. Well, I I sponsor attorneys. Yeah. Yeah, let me beg to differ, you know. (laughs) And yeah, so, but, but, and you might say, but these guys have a lot at stake. They got, these guys have got careers on the line and all of this. Well, I would argue that, that everybody that's trying to negotiate successful recovery, we all have a lot at stake. We all have careers, but, but the relationship with our families, the relationship with the people that we love the most, there is a lot at stake, Mm -hmm. right? There is. Yeah. Analyzing this this a little further, and I know and I know this from personal experience that that let's take the let's take the attorney as an example. You know, the first thing that happens well with all of these is they're assigned a case manager, right? Okay, yeah. They're monitored, right? They, they're going to meet regularly with their case manager, and they're going to go over their progress or lack of, right? And they're going to be held accountable, right? Absolutely. Each one of those is assigned a, uh, a mentor. One is going to be required to get a sponsor. Each one is going to be required to attend 12-step meetings. 
and have those signed and returned. Their meetings are very heavily documented. They're, you know, they're also gonna, gonna attend attorney only 12-step uh, meetings mm -hmm. and physician. The physicians here in Mississippi call it caduceus. The attorneys here in central Mississippi meet on, I believe it's on a Tuesday at lunch and then most of them go out for lunch afterward. Mm. And so then they're also going to be required to attend uh, an annual retreat. And, and this is with fa their family members attend. So this is going to be an annual weekend retreat. Now look at all of that activity and think in terms of this represents a team approach to recovery, right? Mm. Right. There's a lot of people involved. A lot of people involved. It's not just dependent <clears throat> on what this one person is going to do, it's, it's, there's a whole bunch of support and people that are going to be accountability and, and support for this person for their ongoing care. Mm -hmm. Now, so what, what would happen? What if we could take that same approach and apply it to the family? What if we could create a team out of a family? right? Mm -hmm. what, what if we could, could meet as a family team once a week by conference call? You wouldn't even have to be in the same room, you know, together. Mm -hmm. But what if everybody on the team each took a tact on their own recovery and then once a week came together and each person on the team shared about how their recovery process and progress was going. Okay. So kind of it puts everybody on the same page, right? Because everybody's in recovery. Everybody's sharing how it's going. That's exactly right. Everybody is taking the tap. I'm going to tell you from personal experience, coming home from a treatment experience and moving back home and rejoining the family is a little like moving back home to live in a fishbowl. Mm. I don't care how healthy your family members are. They can't help but wondering what I'm up to. Mm -hmm. They watch every move. They interpret it. They ascribe meaning to it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they, if I go to the, if I say to my, you know, I'm, I'm a week out of treatment and I tell my family, I'm running to the store and the store is 15 minutes away and I'm gone an hour and a half. You know, they're going to wonder what, uh-oh, there he's gone off the rails again. They're going to want me to come home and, you know, they're going to be sniffing me up. <laughs> you know, what if in the middle of the night I get a phone call and, you know, I do the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm giving out my phone number and one of my peers or one of the people from my group is struggling and calls late at night and I take the call and my family hears the phone ring and, realize I'm on the phone, they're going to want to subpoena phone records. <laughs> right. Right. I tell them that you're, you're going to want to join CSI Mississippi. <laughs> you know, you're, you're ready to join the FBI and they can't help it because they love me. They right. they're so concerned. They want to do the right stuff, but I'm going to tell you all of that activity creates stress. It puts stress on me. It puts stress on the family. And one of the things that you and I both know, and even if you look at the ASAM definition 
of addiction, it describes it as a stress-induced blah, 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 blah. Right. So the stress in the family system is feeding my disease. It's, it's, and, and so how do I feed my recovery? I got to de-stress situation. I need to de-stress. How do we de-stress the family? Well, we start by working with the family members. Ideally speaking, this could occur while the person is still in treatment. The family should, first of all, have a, a family team discussion about why do we need recovery? What does family recovery look like? We need to talk about it. And then the family needs to take some basic general assignments. As for example, a first assignment might be just this next week, look at the resources that are available to you as a family member in your area. And next week, report back on what you discover. Where are the Al-Anon meetings that are available to you in your area? What time do they meet and where? Where are the Naranon meetings? Where are, are the Celebrate Recovery meetings? Where are the Essanon the meetings? Mm-hmm. What, who are the family therapists that mm-hmm. meet in your area? Uh, come back with you know names, locations, whatever. The first assignment might be just do some general investigation. Mm-hmm. And then report back next week. So everybody has, has done some investigation, comes back. And then the next week's topic might be, let's talk about anger. Let's, while the, while, hopefully while the patient is still in treatment, let's talk about that the natural reaction to the frustrations of dealing with this disease, it might manifest itself in helplessness but underneath, it might really be just about anger, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Let's talk about it. And so the next week's assignment might be, now let's go and, and, and let's, now let's attend a meeting. You know, now we've had a discussion about why I need it. We've all shared about it. You know, now you've done some research to see what resources are available to you. Maybe the next week's assignment might be, just go in and attend. Sign, make an appointment with that therapist, attend that 12-step meeting. You know, don't even say anything. Just go, if you prefer to be completely anonymous, just listen to what they talk about. Come mm-hmm. back the next week, for what it felt like to attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can see, we're breaking this down into very simple, tiny tasks. This is the thing that's been missing. The thing that I never had to offer the families I worked with for so long was that I was, I never had a structure to offer them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I never had a program. I never had topics. And when you attend a 12-step meeting, they all have these readings in the beginning of of the meetings. You know, they all, they're very structured and and they, they start basically the same way each time. Well, what if in our family meetings, we had opening things that we read? What if we had a series of opening statements that each person on the team would go around and read to help us remind us of the structure and why we're there? As an example, you know, the first person on the team call might say, our team meetings are confidential. 
you know, we are not bound to disclose what is said here to non-participating family members, friends, or other persons observing confidentiality. We create an atmosphere of trust and safety. Mm -hmm. The next one might read, we join and start conference calls on time. By doing so, we show respect for team members and their schedules. If someone is late, we do not stop and explain what was missed. We continue with our agenda. The next person on the team might, might read, we speak only about ourselves using I statements. We do not use I statements as thinly veiled you statements. I love that. Mm-hmm. We do others how they feel or think or what they should do. By keeping the focus on ourselves, we learn what is within our power to change myself. So what if there were seven opening statements and around this team, this family team meeting, everybody read one of those. And then what if we had an opening meditation that one of the family members, what if the assignment, one of the assignments was, I want you to get a 12th step or some meditation book that's recovery based that you spur into any other spiritual practice that you have. And if in the week of this daily readings, you find one that's especially impactful to you, bring it to the next meeting and, and offer to share it with the team. Uh-huh. Talk about why it was so impactful to you. And then what if we do this check-in time of everybody sharing their recovery progress of the week? What if we then had a recovery topic like why do I need recovery or talk about anger or talk about humility and forgiveness and grace and higher power and slogans, right? Right. And after we've got a cohesive team out of the family after about say three sessions, what if then we could invite the person of concern into the family team now that it's got structure now that they're used to kind of the whole sharing process. And then we just start meeting together once a week and everybody talk about the elephant in the room. And some are going to move really quickly and fast and some are going to poke along at their recovery and it's all okay. Yeah. I like that. So initially when you're meeting with the family, the person that, you know, the identified client, let's say, right. The, the identified addict, they're not there. So you're meeting, the family is able to kind of maybe talk unedited, right, without doing damage to the person. And then once that's rolling along, that's when you invite the other person in. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jackie. You know, the first session that we have, as I described earlier, was why do I need recovery mm-hmm. as a family member? The ses- second session we talk about is anger the third session we talk about is anger's weird cousin resentments, <laughs> right? Like right. what happens to anger if we don't deal with it? Right. Resentments and how is that, you know, how is that not only, that's physiologically, spiritually, and emotionally damaging, mm-hmm. right? right? Not just me and the object of my resentment, but also to my collateral relationships as well. It leaks out into my outlook on life. We talk about that. And then the fourth session, the topic is forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. that's when we invite, now that the family's had a chance to get in touch with their need for recovery, their anger, their resentment. Now let's bring the person of concern in. Let's all talk about forgiveness. 
Yeah, how, how we all have things that we need to, to forgive and mm -hmm. we all have things we need to be forgiven for. Right. Well, and, and that's, I've been thinking about that 12-step um, phrase, right? The, I think it comes out of the essay book, if I'm correct, the forgiven being forgiving. Yes, yes, right. It's this process we have to, because it's very difficult. If I'm holding on to all of my anger and self-resentment and shame, it's so difficult for me to impart that genuinely on others if, I, if I'm not becoming reconciled within myself to that. Right. It's a, and then conversely, if I'm not doing the, what I can to apply a forgiven spirit to other people, conversely, it's extraordinarily difficult for me to be self-forgiven. Right. And so we talk about this and what we're doing is we're creating this, you know, building this team. We're talking about, we're talking about the thing that no families talk about generally. I describe the family systems as, you know, once we've got this, this person of concern and they've initiated into a, some recovery program, the families tend to the lapse into a kind of a toxic wishful thinking. You know, just kind of thinking, it, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. If we talk about it, maybe that's going to create adverse reactions of the person yeah. I love. I don't really know how to talk about it. I don't want to be triggering. They just sort of kind of lapse into a, a kind of a, well, maybe it'll just go away. Yeah, which you and I both know kind of comes out of the ACA literature that often we grew up in families where the rules were, don't see, don't talk. Exactly, it's right. It kind of, it, exactly, that is, a, is sort of an unspoken family rule mm -hmm. that we don't talk about this stuff. Well, we're going to break the rules. Right. We, we know that, in, that, that really, when we step back and think about it, there really are no secrets, right? We're right. just not talking about it. Right. 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 So let's just let's all come together and let's recognize that this isn't about this isn't about somebody is a bad person. This isn't about shame. This isn't this person has a disease and it's behavioral. I like to think of it in terms of it's kind of like Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Right. I had my dear, wonderful Uncle Glenn and uh, that had Alzheimer's and my father was determined to fix him. And so he said, I know what'll fix him. Let's go on a cruise. <laughs> so, the only time that Uncle Glenn would see my, my grandmother was when he went to visit her in Perry, Oklahoma. So we're on this cruise ship and we're walking along and Uncle Glenn looks over and he says, boy, I did not know Perry, Oklahoma had this much water around it. <laughs> And nobody made fun of Uncle Glenn. We loved this dear right. man. You know, we, it was behavioral, but we didn't shame him. We adored this guy. So, right. you know, and the same thing should apply to addiction. The whole process is we need to put love first, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this whole process, I can't recommend this book enough. It Takes a Family by Deborah J. And what I ask family members that I interact with is don't go buy the book and read the whole thing. Oh, heavens, you know, half of the book is the individual sessions. You know, oh, okay. how sessions, yeah, the topics are in the book. In the book, you've got a year's worth of meeting topics. 
Yeah. You've got recovery plans in the book. So for instance, when a person goes to treatment or works with an individual therapist, at a certain point, they are given a, a treatment plan, a recovery plan, uh -huh. a plan, right? Right. You know, here's the recovery expectations we have. Mm -hmm. It might be you know, regular 12-step attendance. It might be individual therapy sessions. It might be, you know, all kinds of things. Well, why don't we do a recovery plan for the family members too? Mm -hmm. For instance, what, what is the person of concern? What are they going to do if they have a relapse? Right. What are the actions they're going to take? Well, conversely, what's the family member going to do if they have a codependent relapse? Mm -hmm. a controlling relapse. Well, just like we would expect the patient, the former patient or the continuing patient to, to have a plan in place. Why shouldn't we have a plan in place for the families? Right. So that everybody kind of knows what their role is. Exactly. And why don't we share those roles with you? Right. Why don't we have a session where everybody you know, writes up their plan and then shares their plan with one another. So there's complete yeah. I would think this would give the family members also this chance because in a lot of, right, we know where addiction thrives, there's also often these dysfunctional roles that everybody falls into, right? But this is giving them an opportunity to step into a healthy role. Exactly. That they choose. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And let the family members, so we know the person of concern has been looking at relapse warning signs as an example. Mm -hmm. Well, the family has relapse warning signs too. Right. And so all of that is in the book. All of these family relapse warning signs and addiction relapse warning signs are in the book. And the family can just go by these pages of lists of things, check off the ones that apply to them, and then be prepared to share those at our next meeting. Mm -hmm. And so same thing with the person of concern to share about what they're you know, their relapse warning signs. And, and then also to see some of the similarities in those. So yeah. they can start to put together, like when person A does this, person B does this, person C does this, right? And they're all similar, maybe they're parallel to each other. They are. There, there's a lot of similar. But for instance, what I find is, is that one of, the, one of the real common relapse warning signs for addicts as well as family members is isolation. You know, we all tend to, I mean, the whole concept of the, of the disease and what it tends to do to us is isolate us. And at the same time, what is recovery? It's about community. Yes. Right? Yeah. Creating community so that I don't feel like I am this you know, isolated, sick person that nobody understands and I'm worse than everybody else. And, you know, that's where the disease wants us, isolated, mm -hmm. alone. And recovery, we break out of that isolation. We learn that there's others that have struggled similarly. We are not a pariah. We simply have a disease and we come to terms with it and we share openly and honestly about it. Yeah, this is recovery. Yes, this is. Well, when I've started working with families in this process, I've just been amazed at the outcomes. I have just been, we're moving people from that 22 to 30% category, and we're moving people closer to that 85, 90% recovery success rates. That's amazing. Who, like, who doesn't want that? 
Who doesn't want it? I mean, we're all outcome-based for having sex. I mean, we have family members, you know, that say, you know, I would do anything, anything to help the person that I love so much. And what now I've got is a program to offer them and to say that, well, now this is the anything. Right. And it's going to be your best bet at having success. Your best bet. I love that. It is. It's your best bet at having success. And the program is designed for a family to do this on their own. In other words, the book is written such that a family can do this themselves. Mm -hmm. Everything that they need to successfully negotiate this is in the book. At the same time, sometimes families want to hire a professional to host sure. them. To kind of be that neutral mediator. The neutral mediator. And not to say that they want somebody, you know, this is an ongoing process, but sometimes families want a, this neutral mediator, this professional to sit on, in on the family conferences for a period of time until they can get some traction mm -hmm. under their belt, and then they can take over on their own. I would yeah. imagine there's some, like maybe with that um, third party person, that hired professional, right? The families got some maybe lack of confidence in their own ability to do it just because of failed attempts previously. That's right. right. So this, this hired professional comes in and really kind of works with the family until they're like, okay, we know what we're doing now. We can do this. We, we trust ourselves and we trust the structure. It, it's true. And it happens relatively quick. I like to recommend to families if they want to bring a professional in to think in terms of getting you through somewhere around the first seven or eight sessions or so, mm -hmm. to, because that's the place where you've each team member has now written out their recovery plan and they've shared the recovery plan at a team meeting. And then beyond that, it's going to be additional topics and the rhythm sort of becomes more automatic at that point, if that makes sense. Let me ask this question. Did, did the treatment feel just kind of get too rigid? Did we write off families too quickly? You know, I tell you, I think, you know, what I've observed at some treatment centers is, you know, in the beginning, they really wanted to have a, a family commitment, but I've seen so many of them that have started out with a family week has uh -huh. turned a family four day has turned into a family three day has turned into an optional family program. Mm -hmm. Now that's true of all, you know, some of the best treatment centers, you know, bring the families in and have a real experiential for them and a reuniting experience mm -hmm. with their person of concern. I recommend that when, when people are, 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 looking for a, a treatment option for a person of concern, you know, don't forget to, to look at what is their family component. Mm -hmm. How, how much do they integrate families in? You know, it, it, unfortunately, I think for a lot of treatment centers, it's been a matter of costs. Mm -hmm. And so you know, family seems to be the first thing to go, but it's, it's probably the last thing that ought to go. Yeah. Or I think sometimes what happens is, as the, you know, the amount of time that insurance covers treatment, right, yeah. has gotten less and less. And so That's then true. 
we, we have so many things to do at a residential treatment center with little time. And so we don't have time for family week. Well, that's, that's, you're exactly right. I mean, I'm thinking of this one particular treatment center that was, it was only a 90 day program. They would not take people unless they were willing to commit to 90 days mm -hmm. and included in that 90 days was a week long family program. Well, because of insurance and other factors, you know, that had to be whittled down and the treatment experience is just much shorter, you know, right. it, it, it can be. I mean, I always recommend people, the statistics bear out that the longer the treatment experience, the better the outcome. So I'm always an advocate for longer stay than mm -hmm. shorter durations of stay mm -hmm. is pure numbers. And so when you bring in a family, like, is there a minimum number that you want on the team? Is there a maximum number? Well, you know, no, not really. I, I'd say, well, a minimum, I, we would need two, you know, <laughs> we need, you know, I would love to be able to work with two people prior to bringing in the person of concern in. Uh -huh. I've had it though, where the person is already out of treatment or didn't go to treatment. And I've worked with families through those first processes with the person of concern on the team. Oh, and nice. so okay. very transparent to them, you know, we're going to talk about why do we need family recovery and the person of concern is with us. And I'm, you know, I, I asked them to share about why do they need recovery, you know, mm -hmm. and then we talk about anger and resentment at, while the person is there. And so I kind of coach them, you know, we're going to talk about some very difficult things. We're, we, you know, once again, it's the elephant in the room, you know, maximum number. I've had teams that are as big as 10 uh, on the team. And the only downside to that is it tends to limit the, the depth, you know, how long each person shares. Right. If that, I try to respect everybody's time and I try to keep the sessions around an hour without okay. going too much over. I need to move around. What I have found though in bigger teams, eight or 10 member teams, is that rarely do we get everybody on the team call at one time. Somebody's traveling, misses a session, somebody's got something else and they miss a session. I, I, take, I take whatever we can, we can get. And some right. people think about, what about adolescents, you know, uh -huh. or young even being on the team? Well, sometimes adolescents, you know, do real well being, you know, a team member because there is, there is Alateen that they can attend and all. Um, at the same time, even younger, one of the things that we went through in the training was some, some younger, maybe young adolescents or even younger, want to be a part of the team, but maybe the topics and the things that are shared are a little beyond them. So one thing we might do is have them be a part of the opening readings and let them, you know, do the check-in first. And I might say to a younger a team participant, you know, tell us something, so tell us something that brought sunshine into your life this week. And then let them talk about that. And then, well, now tell us something that brought clouds into your life this past week mm -hmm. and let them talk about that. And so they get to be a part of it in the beginning. And then as we, as we move on into topics, they can break away. Yeah. They've been apart, but now they don't need to be, you know, sometimes attention spans for a whole hour can be right. a change anyway. Yeah, that's a right. very high functioning maybe 
concept for a little kid. And I would imagine maybe having teens or adolescents involved is going to also do some preventative work for them. Well, that's true. I tell you, also something to be considered is more and more of the families I'm working with, the person of concern is an adolescent. Mm. Let's just face it. I'm dealing more and more. Our clients are getting younger and younger. Yes. Access is getting more available so that you can get it at younger ages. Absolutely. And I have been yeah, profoundly affected by just how young uh, it is that the access, yeah, how young they are at first access, how pervasive this is. We're, you know, as, as Pat Carnes has talked about for so long, we're dealing with a tsunami. Yes. Heading yeah. our, well, I think that it's rolling onto shore as it's we starting start. to hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think of all of this? What do, you, what do you think that we could do with outcomes based on a system like this? I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, how long has her program or book been out? I've been working with this now for two years. Okay. And, and so I'm, I met her uh, a little over that and just immediately said, I've got yeah. to be a part. I've got to, whatever it takes, I've got to be a part of this. If I'm going to be nothing more than just a very vocal, enthusiastic advocate, then I'm going to be that. But if I could be qualified to where I could be trained in this, to be able to deliver this content to people, that's what I wanted. Deborah J is real, uh, is, is insistent. She wants to train people that are in the therapeutic community, mm-hmm. but she's insistent that she will only allow you to be trained if you're working your own 12-step recovery program. Okay, yeah. Well, I just, I look at this and I'm, I mean, in so many ways, I'm like, it just makes sense. Like, why haven't we known this? Why isn't this the standard approach for somebody in recovery? I know, I know. That's exactly. See, you're, you're doing what I, I was sitting there and she was talking about this and I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the missing link. No wonder I've been so ineffective at what I've been trying to do. Oh my goodness. Of course, the outcomes will improve. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm thinking of four families right now. I need to run, show them the book and get them started. This is a game changer. It, re- it really is. On your podcast, I want to post like the title of the book, where to get it. Uh-huh. And I want to encourage people that as you get the book, you know, don't go try to devour the whole thing. All I would ask you to do is just read the first 34 pages of the book. Okay. And if in 34 pages that you become convinced that this is the right approach for you, then I just ask you to immediately pass the book to a prospective team member mm-hmm. and ask them to just, let's keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, read a whole book, few will do it. You know, mm-hmm. just read the first 34 pages, pass the book to someone you think would be a prospective team member, ask them to just read 34 pages and then pass the book along to someone else. If in 34 pages, you're not convinced that this is something that is a would work for you, B is doable. Then you've done everything that I would ever ask you to do. Mm -hmm. But if you feel like that this is doable and you can find a partner who's willing to join you in this process, then get in touch with me, get in touch with Structured Family Recovery. We'll post the, my website and I would hope the, the Love First website there. Uh, there's also on Deborah J's website, 
There's all kinds of wonderful videos about this. Uh, they talk about family structure and how to implement this. It's just a, a veritable just wealth of family information there too. Yeah, that's amazing. I've shared with listeners before some of my story, right? And in my family, I think most of us knew we were dysfunctional and we, we di- didn't really know why. And it wasn't until my father's funeral that the addiction stuff started coming out, okay. right? Like there were just a lot of holes that we couldn't quite put, like there's multiple addictions in his life. And I don't know that he hit it so well. I think that we just weren't looking for that, right? Or we didn't know to look that, oh, he has addiction. So I feel like because all of that kind of came out at his funeral and a lot of it was like dots were connecting for us as the children. My parents were divorced by this time. And I feel like we've just kind of like been hodgepodging along since then, right? And, and we were kind of like, well, we're fairly functional. Like hopefully most of us aren't replicating some of that from the family. I think different siblings and myself have done different amounts of therapy. But I, it just, I love this family structure and just getting that whole family involved to get that healing happening on a family level. That's right. And let everybody take their own tact. I mean, you know, some, it might be, it might be adult children of alcoholics might be just doing individual therapeutic work. And we don't ask anybody to share their deepest, darkest secrets that come out in therapy. Uh We're just asking them to, you know, to just come and share with us so that we all can know that we're all on a recovery track, if that makes sense whatever it may be. Um, I give people a lot of leeway, you know, and of course, because you and I both know there's multiple pathways to recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so whatever that pathway is for you is great. Just get on a path, join the team, share the, the journey you're on. What in this last week have you been doing to help nurture your recovery? It may be the meeting you attended. It may have been the the walk in the country that you took. It may be the music that you listened to, the meditations that you've done. It may be that conversation you had with another person that you love and deeply understands you. Whatever it may be, bring that to the team and let's share about this. You know, Jackie, better than anybody, you know, addiction is going to fragment the family. Yes. Family recovery is going to, what that's going to bring us back together and make us whole. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what this whole thing is about. Addiction is about isolation. Recovery is about community. Well, why can't we create that community in the people that love each other the most? Right. So it's kind of, I I will often tell clients that oftentimes the trauma happened relationally and therefore healing is going to have to happen relationally. Oh, I love that. That's so true. And oftentimes because the trauma happens relationally, we go to isolation. Right. Well, we don't know. And from my personal, you know, I didn't know how to talk about it. And the family system was about keeping secrets Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't know how to talk about it, but it was kind of like whenever me and my sisters would get together and we would talk about our father, but sometimes I felt like we were Holocaust survivors, <laughs> wanting, you know, sharing, sharing horror stories. And I'll never forget, sometimes my sister 
would say, my older sister would say, well, don't you remember such and such and such and such? And I would pause and I would go, well, I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't remember that, but thanks for sharing. Right. It has been it has been quite a journey. And one thing that I, I gotta say, I, I love recovery. This has brought I did not know that when I got into recovery at the old age of 47, I did not know that the best years of my life lay ahead. I love that, yeah. The most productive years of my life lay ahead. The most joy, you know, the most joy and and heartache. But mm-hmm. to be able to to experience both of those things in recovery, that it's just all part of life and to know how to do that and maintain sobriety and to be able to be present for my family and authentic with my family in a way that I, I did not know. I not only did I not know it was possible, I didn't know what it was. Right. Well, and I think even if we, if we go even on a bigger level, right, I just think our society in general doesn't know how to have difficult conversations. Right. And then because we don't know how to have difficult conversations, we also don't know how to have the most meaningful conversations, right? Right. We don't really know how to tell people that we love them and how we feel about them, right? We kind of do that from a distance or we hope that they get that message. And I just think there's so much when we get into recovery and especially if the family can get into recovery, how many beautiful conversations they can actually have and really see each other in ways that, you know, that the family member knows that they see them and everybody sees each other. I just think that's so healing. And if we can have those happening in families, right, then what changes come in communities and what changes come on a larger scale when we can do those skills? Well, that's beautifully said. I mean, that's when I start thinking about why can't we introduce this in schools? Why can't we talk about recovery with young, young children? Why can't we do this? I got to tell you, so my little boy, Alex, is three and, and Alex goes to AA with me. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, well, the group that I attend is just very welcoming and Alex is very respectful and he sits in my lap during the meeting and I turn the sound off on my phone and he watches truck videos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, so I go to pick him up on Friday at, at daycare. We usually go to the meetings on Mondays and Fridays at 5.15 right after daycare because that then gives mom a chance to go to Al-Anon at 6.30. So mm-hmm. Alex and I, you know, will go off and give mom a chance to do her meeting too. So, so I go to pick up Alex at, on, a, on a Friday at daycare and the, the teacher just have, you know, just striking up conversation. He says, Alex, are you going to have a, a big weekend this weekend? You know, are you going to do something special? Alex looked at her and said, yeah, I'm going to a meeting. And the teacher looked a little puzzled and she says, well, where are you? Where do you go to this meeting? He says, the Yana Club. She, she looked even more puzzled at him. And she says, well, what do you do at the Yana Club? He said, we keep coming back. <laughs> I love that. It's so great. So now the ladies in the meeting have adopted him and bring him suckers, you know, to the meeting. And it's just, it's just super. He's, I don't know. But talking about this, in my addiction, without realizing I was creating a legacy, Mm -hmm. right? 
-hmm. I was creating a legacy of addiction and I was passing on the shame that was passed on to me. Mm -hmm. And what I've, I've learned in recovery is now I've, I'm creating a new legacy. I'm creating a recovery legacy for my little boy. And who knows what dividends yeah. this is going to pay for the type of relationship he gets into and the life he leads and, you know, who's to say. And if he develops, you know, this addiction, you know, we know 10% of the population is predisposed to it, mm -hmm. that he's going to know what to do and where to go. Mm -hmm. As will you and your wife. As, as, we, as we will too. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been so great talking to you and catching up and hearing what you're doing. I'm going to put a lot of these um, links that we've talked about in the show notes. I've kept notes so that I can do that. Any parting words or any last things you want to say before we wrap up? Well, you touched on something just really, you know, quick about uh, that. We want to do a session on, uh, on grief recovery. So mm -hmm. that's another thing I got interested in is how do you deal, you know, in our society, as you said, we're really great at accumulating things, mm -hmm. but we don't want to let go. Yes. And other cultures are much better at that. So there's a whole process that I've learned, uh, that, that is a grief recovery process that, and so maybe we ought to come back at yeah. another time and talk about I would love to it. do that. I, I mean, I do think we don't talk very much about grief in recovery. And yet, like j just the big book of AA is full of grief stuff. Right. Yeah. I know that, which brings me up to another one. We ought to talk about, you know, Pat Carnes the principles. We ought to do yeah. a session on the principles. We should, because that's how you and I met. That is, um, well, that would be a step fellowship coming up. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I hope it is. We're in the process of writing that book now. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, okay. I've, I've put you down for two, two more topics. I'm sure my listeners will love to have you on because of the wisdom you share and how you share that. And it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jackie, so much. And I look forward to talking again soon. Yes. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.